Apple Podcast, a podcast centering on entrepreneurship and science. That's really the big thing we get into. Today, we are joined with Jim Cup, engineer, racer, and entrepreneur, co-founder and CEO of Vector Launch, which is building next-generation space infrastructure for, micro, for the microspace industry. Additionally, is the founder of Stat Space, vintage exotic competition. And before all of this, he was on the founding team at SpaceX with Elon Musk as an early partner and VP. This interview can be can be thought of as broken down into parts. The first part is about racing, his favorite car, you know, what he's learned about that, his favorite places to drive, advice, and, and then how does it tie in, into being a good entrepreneur, like how to find the golden mean. The second uh, the second part it involves, you know, China versus the U.S., the New Silk Road versus the Platinum Highway, uh, the differences between the America and the USSR during the space race. And at the end, we have a great, like, kind of advice and reflection, like, what do you think it takes to be a good entrepreneur? And we also learn about, in, in at SpaceX, there was this moment where Elon Musk had, like, multiple rockets that were blown up, and they weren't going up, and they basically had one rocket left that if it didn't work, it wouldn't have made it for the the startup and we talk about a similar thing that happened at vector space granted they are early but one time where they had to really push it and we talk about giant big red buttons and launching set uh satellites so well launching rockets at least so i think if any of that interested you if you like space like entrepreneurship like racing if you like uh talking about uss versus china you like learning about how the soviets weren't all that different from nasa in a lot of the ways it was structured if you want to learn about how to be a better entrepreneur that type of thing i think this is gonna be a great episode this we do get into a lot of the interesting things that vector is doing that haven't been covered in other interviews that i saw because I, I watched all of them and i tried uh, i tried finding questions that most people have not asked so if you like this type of thing let me know i will try to be more video horrific i was reading on your website that you're your favorite race was a 2015, I wrote it down, I want to make sure I get it right, 20, uh, 2015, 24-hour Daytona Classic, and you drove a 45-year-old Corvette. And so I'm curious when, I'm curious if you could pick any vehicle to go on any race, if you, you pick the same Corvette. Yeah, so as far as uh, picking any race car for any race, I, I definitely wouldn't pick that car again. We uh, drove it only because it was a historic race, and that was you know, what we were doing. So if I were uh, to pick another car to run a race, it would probably be one of the uh, modern Porsche 911s that the, the factory puts out that uh, runs Le Mans. And what about for, for Route 66? I don't know if you've driven it or not, but it's, it's on my... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you'd have to have something that was uh, both good handling because it's a, it's a, it's a narrow road and uh, you'd have to have something that uh, had a good stereo in it because... There's uh, sometimes not a lot of things to look at. So, uh, and it would also have to be something that you could put the top up and down because when it gets the sun out and in New Mexico and some of those places, uh, you, you almost want to put the, the top up, but uh, some of the cooler places are the best place to have the top down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'd probably pick an AMG uh, uh, GTS uh, convertible is what I would probably pick. I assume since you're a race car driver that you, that you probably have several cars. Like, it seems like a lot of... Uh... <laughs> it like kind of goes hand in hand, but um, yeah. do you have that type of car? AMG GTS right now, so I like it. Yeah, and I have 20, 26 cars, I think. Wow, I have one car. <laughs> one day I'll, I'll get more. But um, is do you uh, do you have like a if you just like as a general, do you have a favorite car, or is that the favorite car as well for you? So this will sound crazy to you, but my one ton Dodge truck is my favorite 
uh, car to drive. And uh, it just, it's just comfortable. And, you know, if I take it on long trips, that's, that's my favorite one to take. And you can do anything with it. It's got a place in the back to sleep if you decide to stop on a, on a long drive. But, uh, you know, for, uh, for various things, you know, it's, it's like uh, everything else, a different tool for a different job. And my favorite race car is a Porsche 997. We just ran that last weekend at Circuit of the Americas. Just a precise machine. And I have an old uh, 1964 Corvette. That's my favorite vintage race car. And it's a very famous car that uh, has been run over the last 45 years and has lots of wins under its belt. It's just a, it's, it's a piece of art that represents the effort of a lot of different people. And I, I inherited it. I see myself as a caretaker. And then uh, my favorite sort of street car to drive around uh, would, would probably be, uh, believe it or not, a Volkswagen GTI. They're just a whole lot of fun. Hmm. How, how old is your, your, your truck? I have a cousin who has like one from the from the forties or fifties, but maybe a little. Well, yeah, it's pretty old. It, this one's new. It's brand new. So it's a okay. big, big one ton Dodge diesel, brand new. And every 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 few years, I buy another one because I just like the new ones. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. The I get it might be like your your farm roots that make you like it a lot. It's like kind of like that's the nostalgia to it. My blue collar roots. Yeah, I still drink beer from the bottle. Mm. The if. So kind of a, a, a another kind of one of those because I haven't been to Route 66. I've I've driven from like Chicago to like just shy of Albuquerque, New Mexico. So I'm trying to like drive all over. And I've driven from uh, Chicago to Boston. So I'm trying to find like really great places to drive because it. I think I think America is one of those places that it's more of a place to drive through because we're just it's such an expansive place versus. Um, I think the EU you could probably take a train and be just as nice. But I feel like you really can't get a lot of what America is unless you like drive it. Um, sure. so, yeah. So it, do you, I hear really great things about the Pacific coast. I hear that's really beautiful, but do you have any like go-to places that you like to check out? Yeah. So route one on the Pacific coast is actually pretty spectacular. You know, you have to plan it ahead. If you go between uh, San Francisco and uh, Los Angeles, there's a lot of closed roads, you know, between mudslides and road work and things like that. But it's, it's, it's a pretty spectacular drive and you, you got to have a lot of patience. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of folks that, uh, yeah, that, that, that that drive fast there, so they, they tend to go slow. So that's a great one. You know, believe it or not, I actually like I ten out through West Texas, and mm-hmm. uh, it's it's such a it's such a solemn place, and uh, I, I just love that part of the world. And nobody can bother you because the cell phone doesn't work. So then uh, then the other one that's actually one of my favorites is Route eighty nine up through Utah. If you start at Southern Utah and it goes all the way up on the back roads. It used to be the main North South route through mm-hmm. Utah. So there's sort of this old uh, set of towns and infrastructure that, that, that uh, was, was used to support the drivers through there. And it's just a little bit of a trip back in time and it's, it's interesting and it changes and speed changes up and down. So it's a great, great drive. Mm-hmm. Do you, just because you're a racer, do you ever have problems like, moderating your speed when you're <laughs> where there's like actual speed zones or or is it easy to differentiate because sometimes i have a lead foot i've only had to take it one time i think but like i i, I don't know if that's like a, a prevalent problem with uh, racers not really um you'd think so but it's not i mean i started racing go-karts when i was a kid mm-hmm. and then during college i had to give up racing because i couldn't afford it and then i ended up in europe for a few years and i didn't really start up again until 2005 and uh, I tell you, between college and 2005, I got a lot more tickets than I've gotten since then. So, you know, sometimes when you get off the track, 
uh, like after this last weekend, I did two three-hour stints at, at uh, Circuit of the Americas. And when I got into the rental car to drive back to the hotel, you know, I, I, I tended to swerve, you know, through the, through the traffic a little bit more uh, aggressively than I think I probably should. But apart from that, you know, the, really the thing it affects is, is your sense of risk. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I tell people that are afraid that I might get hurt on the track that actually I'm probably more at risk on the freeway. And so you have to you have to really adjust yourself for the quality of drivers you're around on the on the street and and their reaction to you when you're on the track. You know you can literally get an inch or two away from the person next to you, and they're they're a used to it, and b they they tend to have a higher driving skill than, than the average person. Mm-hmm. That's really you know as far as the speed goes, I don't feel the need to uh, to go particularly fast on 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 the streets. I, I get that out of my my uh, system out on the track. Makes sense. Is there is there a good movie that captures what it's like to race cars? Like the the joke movie I I think of that pops in my head is probably like Cars or, or um you know Talladega Nights. But I I doubt that those are you know accurate in any way. But do you if you're a cinephile at all, is there any that captures it really well? Yeah, there's a couple of them. Um, one is um, Le Mans, which is old. It's actually. Uh, uh, from made in the sixties and it was, uh, done by Steve McQueen. Uh, he, he directed it and it has a whole sorted history about how that was put together. Uh, but it, it captures kind of the grid of it pretty well. They spent a lot of time actually out on the track filming from the cars. And in the sixties, you know, they, they, they broke a lot of barriers on how they actually did cinematography from the cars. Um, but frankly, uh, modern day, if you go on YouTube, there's some really great videos out there, you know, from the driver's perspective, and you can get the sense of, of, of what it's like by just watching a lot of YouTube videos. And if you go to my website, for example, I post, you know, some of the better drives I'll, I'll put together for music or whatever. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I like to tell people, uh, you know, some of these cars I drive, like these big heavy GT1s that are, you know, eight, 900 horsepower, tube frame cars. It's, it's a little bit like putting a nine volt battery on your tongue or uh, listening to some of the heavy metal I like, you know, that's sort of the, the sensation. It's hard to, it's hard to really put it across in cinematography. There's a lot of other things going on there that, uh, that, that are more captured by in some cases, music, and in some cases, physical sensations. But one of the sensations I get when I've been around a car long enough is it starts to feel like a, an extension of your body. And that's when you really know you're one with a car. It's almost Zen-like that that you know, you feel like somehow your your hands can go out and become the front wheels and you're it's it's a, it's a strange sensation and only when you really are one with the car does that happen and, and it's not often and you know when you ask what my favorite car is that's one of the reasons i like that porsche i've, I've achieved that with it i have an old shelby can am that that feels that way to me too and it's like an old friend and uh you know that 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 kind of sensation is hard to describe to people. You really have to go, you have to go feel it yourself. And it's not for everybody. It's it's uh, it, it's something that um, is is very much about challenging uh, your control of something that's happening very fast and developing a skill that's very real and undeniable that you get the satisfaction from. It's not always just speed, and it's mm-hmm. not G forces and things like that. There's a lot more to it. Endurance racing is very much a thinking person sport. Uh, there's a lot of strategy involved. And when you refuel, and, you know, how you drive the car and how hard you drive the car and how reliable the car is. And I'm, I'm the guy that 
drives with the most fuel efficiency in our team. And I'm, I'm typically a few seconds a lap slower, but I can go three hours because I've got the physical endurance and, uh, you know, I, I have the, the fuel mileage. So, so I end up being overall faster, even though I'm slower on a, on a lap speed. So there, there's a lot to it. And, and that's what makes it so interesting. And, and for me, it's a lot like business, you know, and being an entrepreneur is a lot like driving a race car and you have to make split second decisions. You have to, uh, you have to be afraid of nothing. If you're afraid of it, you'll, you'll never get in it. And, and I'll admit, I, I get afraid every time I start to put on the driving suit, I start to think about things. And then when I hear the cars start up, I'm, I'm in another world. I'm not afraid, but uh, being an entrepreneur is the same thing because you've got all these people's lives in your hand. You have all this investor's money and you have to make decisions very quickly and uh, the outcome's uncertain. But uh, the winning is, is, is just glorious when you do it. Mm-hmm. The, it's an interesting thing about fear where like you'll, like I've noticed that as well. If I'm afraid of something, I'm, I used to be afraid of flying and I, you know, I'd ruminate about it before getting into the plane. But as soon as I was in the plane, it's like, okay, well, there's a pilot he's been doing it for, or he or she's been doing it for many years. So it kind of, it stops being fearful. So it, it's kind of like, I think someone, there was a quote of someone saying that like worrying about something is kind of like punishing yourself twice for one event. So like you're, you're like thinking, oh, well, all the horrible things that are going to happen once, but once you're in it, they can kind of like relax and you don't even really think about it, like just more about executing it. And I, I really liked the post or article you wrote on LinkedIn about this concept of racing being very similar to entrepreneurship. And I think that's um, like the Zen was. Sorry. Oh, you're good. It's a phone. I'll turn the ringer off. Okay. It's all good. The, this is one of the ones I had written down because I wanted to get it right. But there there was two two key concepts that I thought were really interesting, especially since you kind of like captured by saying Zen, but the, like the balance between like you said, passion, you know, skill level and demand is really important. And then you also said that like the idea that you have to be balanced and not like if something happens to reflect on it later and then be more about like fixing it. And, like if you like, you know, biff it or like something bad happens, like you don't sit there and be like, Oh, this sucks. Uh, you know, I did a horrible job. It's more like, okay, let's get back in the race. And then when it's over, then you reflect on it, which really did seem very Zen like, and so it kind of reminded me of Aristotle's golden mean, which is um, for people who are not familiar, it's this idea that um, virtues are the balance between two extremes. And when you're in the, in the middle of it, you can basically achieve success. And so I'm curious as someone who's like, who's done this with racing, have you found, have you found ways to kind of channel that? Is the idea that racing gave that to you or was it a part of you that racing allowed you to like, excise from from you if that if that does that make sense like the idea that like i assume you weren't born that way i guess is the idea and so i'm curious how did you develop yourself in such a way where you had that sense of balance and that zen that racing gave you yeah so when i was young um i was very unsure of myself uh for a number of reasons uh but the one passion i had was was building things and the other passion i had was going fast and and piloting the machine and uh, so I started out building go-karts and, and things like that. And, you know, any, any piece of material that, that was available would get it used by, by me for a go-kart, you know. So it was, uh, uh, it, was, it was a completely different personality then than I am now. And, uh, you know, as I went through college and went through life, you know, college battered my, my self-confidence because it's hard. And I came from a family that nobody had had anything beyond a a uh, high school education. So I was 
on my own as far as experience on how I got through this. And uh, you're never sure, you know, whether or not you have the intellect to do it. You're never sure of, of, of you know, whether it's a matter of pedigree or, or whether it's something else. And what you discover in getting through those things is that it's actually your self-determination and your willingness to never quit. And uh, so, so those are all the qualities that start to accumulate over time. And I have to, I have to tell you, um, the other part is aggression. And I was a very non-aggressive person until I moved to France. My first real job was with the French space agency. And uh, in, in the French culture was quite different than the U.S. We have a little more genteel, at least in the engineering world, you know, where we entertain each other's ideas and we try to select the idea that's, that's the most logical or the best. In the French culture, it's, you know, whoever's idea prevails is based on how hard you fight for it. Mm. And uh, I suppose that comes from two different cultures where in America, really culturally, we believe in creating more of the pie, but in Europe, the pie is fixed and you have to fight for your share of it. So I learned to be very aggressive around the French. And, and of course, we were dealing with the Soviets and, and likewise, they were the same way. And uh, when I came back from France, I, I had this level of aggression that, that I never had before. And those two things are what I really ended up bringing back into racing that you could channel your aggression. I had to learn how to channel my aggression when I came back into polite American society. I, I, I couldn't make the checker behind the counter at the store cry. I was considered uh, uh, improper. And uh, of course, if you're a boss, that's called a hostile work environment and things like that. So uh, learning how to channel your aggression, use it when, it, when it's applicable, and, uh, but, but yet not being afraid are all byproducts of life that are reinforced by racing. So what the racing did for me personally, I don't know about others, but it, it gave me something that I could evaluate that there was no arguing about. There's no, no question about the result was the result. And you either won or you didn't win. You either made it to the end of the race, or you didn't make it to the end of the race. Your car either worked or it didn't work. And there, there, was, there was this incredible sense of accomplishment that I personally got from it that, that I, could, I could deal with things that happened um, on, on a... Uh, on a, on a very quick basis, for example, in a race, you spin, you know, you have to collect yourself and be calm and get the car back. You know, last weekend I spun 360 degrees on the carousel at about 120 miles an hour. And I very, you know, very calmly put the clutch in and kept the engine running. And then when I came back around, I put it back in gear and kept driving. And uh, that's the sort of thing that gives you an enormous amount of self-confidence when you can do that without your heart jumping to 150 beats a minute. And uh, without the adrenaline flowing, people often say about racing, hey, you know, I bet you love the adrenaline. And yeah, you get a lot of adrenaline doing it. But usually the really high adrenaline comes when you've done something wrong. Mm -hmm. and you want to avoid that. So, so the, other, the other part of it is, you know, you, you get this confidence that you can push things to the envelope and you can start to control them. Things that seem uncontrollable, uh, you know, horsepower, machinery, speed. It's also true of, you know, of, of business. You know, there's a lot of factors outside of you that you can't control the same as racing. And so you, you become confident in yourself and your ability to figure your way through it and think your way through problems and, and react correctly when, when they happen. And uh, uh, that, that for me is, is the biggest benefit. And one of the reasons I, uh, 
think uh, I've been actually able to be a better entrepreneur, believe it or not, uh, because of racing. Mm-hmm. The, it's interesting to note that the French were uh, like brought out your aggression because in modern time, I, I interview a bunch of people across the pond all the time, and they make it seem like the Americans are the aggression ones where like they have to try and like model, like when they pitch to investors, that there's a, a, well, aggression and confidence. I guess I'm conflating the two. It seems that the, they, they, they like the fact that Americans are very confident in how we talk, but I mean, it's just from what I've been hearing, like they will try and like, if like an American goes over there and talks, they'll like, they'll come up to them afterwards and ask how they are able to talk that way. And so apparently there's like something interesting there, but the, I, I would never consider the French an aggressive people, which, which is kind of, that's just interesting to learn. Are they, is it still that case? Like, like 20, uh, in college. So yeah, like 20 years later, is it still that case where they're fighting over the pie or, or, or have things changed? In the- I don't think things fundamentally change. In fact, I was just on the phone prior to this interview with a colleague of mine who originally is from Germany, and he's trying to raise money. And, and I, I, I said, you know, look, you know, you, you're from Germany, and you don't like to hard sell. I mean, that I, I lived there long enough to know that the way you sell in Europe is different than the way you sell here. We in America are brash. We're, we we believe in selling. We believe in stepping forward. That's different from being aggressive. Uh, on on defending your own personal space, I I do think the Americans tend to be on the whole less aggressive, uh, particularly where I came from in Los Angeles. Maybe New York's a little different. Uh, you know, it's it's a little the East Coast is a little more aggressive, and and you know the East Coasters will tell you that that uh, you know L.A. smooth is different from New York uh, brash. But but by and large, yeah, the French and, and Europeans in general. Are very aggressive. I uh, my my wife is uh, German and her family German, and I see it I see it there as well. And it's it's an aggression that's different than than you know what maybe a lot of people think of. And I think our American uh, standards for culture come across as aggressive to the Europeans, and and indeed it probably is at a certain level. But you know, in terms of uh, actually how we rank each other in society. We're a lot more congenial here and accommodating than, than the European society still is even to this day. Mm-hmm. Well, I have noticed at least in my age bracket that people tend to avoid conflict a lot, which it's like, how do you resolve certain things if you try and hide from them a lot, which I'm more the type of person that I'll like dive in there and, <laughs> and try to figure out where the problem comes from, which uh, some people like or, or don't like depending on their, their temperament. But the, the, re- the reason I ask about this idea, like how can you build in that fearlessness into you is because there's, I think there's a guy named, I think his name was John Glenn. I hope I'm saying his name right. But like he would, when they, when he was on the, in the space shuttle, or it might've been the Saturn V, but uh, the, he would launch up into space and he'd basically like take a nap. Like everyone else would be like really, that like their hearts would go really like nuts because you know, they're on a rocket and they're going into space and he would like almost like take a nap and then when they would get into space, like, all right, you know, not now to get, you know, get things going. And so when I read about that, I'm always curious, like, I'm sure, I'm sure he wasn't born that way. I'm sure like, like you, you like build yourself to these states. I think it's interesting to learn about people such as yourself as well. And that like when people, I think sometimes will see someone like you, they think, oh, they were always that way that, you know, they were always, you know, that aggressive person who could build a business and, you know, race a car and spin out 360. And so it, it's, it's interesting to me to, to learn, like, where does it come from? Cause then you can kind of see like how to, to replicate it. But so definitely thank you for answering that question. The, and you kind of touched on uh, another qu- question I wanted to ask you about, cause this is, um, you don't, you don't like the term space 2.0. I think it's more entrepreneurial space. 
is the the term that's interesting. And I, I was reading from you and from a number of the interviews you've done that you noticed a similarity when you were either in college or just right after, after college when you're working with France, that the U.S. Space Agency and the USSR Space Agency was ironically built similarly. And that now, now like the <clears throat> the big driving force is that entrepreneurs are really coming in and starting to like bring down the cost of things and open up the space, which is really interesting. And so I, I've been really fascinated by this concept of the, the new Silk Highway that China is developing for the, the 21st century. And this idea that we're developing the Platinum Highway, like, you know, you're developing the Platinum Highway and people like you are developing it. And so I'm, I'm very curious to hear, like, do you think the Platinum Highway is going to, I guess like the, the synthesis of this question is, and a quote that to quote you is that uh, on your website, you said that if you look at the skyline in eight, in the 1800s in New York city, it was flat. And then they invented the elevator and then it, it exploded upwards. And that you think that rockets are going to do the same way, do the same thing for our economy. And so that's kind of like the difference between that the China going kind of wide with their new silk road and then America going tall with the, the platinum highway. I, I'm curious if you think that like, if you think that's really like, if that'll set us up to be competitive and if there are other factors that you think that we're that the platinum highway is really going to like beat beat out if that makes sense it's like it's a it's a topic that i don't have the answer to but you have like a lot of experience so i'm definitely curious to hear your thoughts on it well one of the things you sort of discover when you live long enough is you know we we place bets on certain strategies based on experience and intuition and things like that but by and large, your, your actions are driven by what you're passionate about. And for me, I'm passionate about building things and particularly highly energetic things, which rockets are. So, so in terms of, um, you know, would I choose to build the Silk Road or the Platinum Road? The answer is always the Platinum Road, rather, rather whether it's, it's the, the one that creates wealth or not. But I do, in this case, believe that the, the economy itself will expand both horizontally on the surface of the earth and vertically with, to the, accommodate the space sector. And you're right, the, uh, the, the comment I made about government space was uh, that, that really the US space program, the Soviet space program, and by and large, the, the militaries of the two countries ran on similar economics. I, I accused the de Defense Department of running on Soviet economics and that we use Soviet economics to defeat the Soviet Union uh, to defend capitalism, which is one of the great ironies of my life. And uh, so, so what capitalism has to do is to follow a, an economic benefit. And it's pretty clear that uh, investors who are incredibly smart people, I mean, when I went to college and engineering school, we all always made fun of the business majors. But to my chagrin, I found out that uh, that's actually a lot harder than engineering. Engineering is fairly well-defined, but, but business is, is much less well-defined. And it's, I consider it a much harder uh, uh, area to practice. But you know, these guys who have made a lot of money by placing bets on these, uh, on these various areas uh, are also agreeing with me that uh, the space economy is, is where the future is. And if you look at uh, you know, the, the finite resources we have here on Earth, it's a much farther looking vision to create a, a space economy than, than to simply uh, more broadly uh, populate the, the surface of the earth. So uh, it, it also, I think, and this is very important, and it's very uniquely American in many ways, not totally unique to America, but it's uniquely American characteristic that we think of where do we go next, right? We are 
we are people who are products, most of us, of immigration. Uh, you know, even the native peoples were immigrants years and years ago, if you go back far enough. And uh, what it took for our ancestors to come here to North America was, you know, a faith that, you know, before the age of Google, they wouldn't even have pictures of North America before the cameras were even existing. They'd get on a boat, you know, and you're going to go somewhere, you're going to have a job, and somehow you're going to make a living. And uh, it took an immense number amount of faith in yourself and in people around you that it would all turn out okay. And that, that lives on in each one of us that are Americans, and that, that really plays out in, in our exploration of the cosmos. And the exploration is both economic and, and you know, physical. And, you know, when Elon says he wants to go to Mars, I have no doubt. And that's one of the things I've known for 15 years. People would ask me, what, what motivates the guy? I say, he wants to go to Mars. It was pretty clear the day I met him. And uh, that lives on within all of us. And, and part of the popularity of, of space investing is, is it appeals to that side of things. You know, there's one thing to make money. And then there's another thing to make money that actually advances the human species. And Neilan's right. We have to figure out a way to get off the surface of the planet. Uh, you know, not in permanence, I guess, eventually, you know, when the, when the sun eats the earth. But, uh, you know, that's part of, part of what drives us and it feeds, it feeds the soul. And uh, that's very important. You can't, you can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I definitely agree that we're all explorers. I think even, even to some extent, I think we're all scientists. And then something happens in like K through 12 where people <laughs> stop liking science as much. The, do you, do you subscribe to the great man theory when it comes to history where like a, like a Napoleon has to come around and then he captures like the revolution and then pushes it on? Or the idea that like society, like all these people are basically, you know, churning and ready for these things. This kind of ties back to the Platinum Highway. Everyone's excited about space and they're looking to go somewhere. And then there, you know, there's a couple of people like yourself and Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, that are like giving people something to be hopeful about. Or is it like a person like you or Elon Musk comes around and then captures people's attention? Like, do you think it's either or is it like a combination of both? Like, is it, does the, do the people have to be ready for it or can a person make people ready for it? I guess is the question. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think single people can change the world in the sense that they're not ready for it. And, uh, you know, what change agents are, are harnessing an energy that's already there and they're recognizing it and they're, and they're pushing things. They're, they're affecting the outcome. Uh, you know, if you want to talk about bad change agents, for example, Hitler was one of them. And, you know, I've read a lot of books on the attack on Moscow. And it's pretty clear from, you know, what I have read in the history of it that, that uh, the, the war was over the moment he stepped over the border in the Soviet Union. And uh, they just couldn't, couldn't overcompensate for the amount of war capacity that the United States could produce. And behind it, the, the amount of human sacrifice the Soviets were willing to make. And between those two things, the Germans were doomed. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so Hitler was a change agent in a very negative way. But obviously, the, the German society was receptive to this because of a historical set of coincidences. And this, the same was true of the space race. And um, you know, if you look at you know, what happened with John Kennedy, you know, he couldn't have stood up there and said, hey, we're going to go to the moon and all these things without America really being ready for that. And, and I would submit to you that since that day that, that the last man walked on the moon, the reason we haven't gone back there is really America has not w really been uh, as animated by that because that was seen as a contest between communism and capitalism. And, and people forget today uh, that that was a life and death struggle. 
and that it was something that, that, the, that the United States was ready for. And what I think we are ready for today is for the private human to do this, that, that this is a libertarian idea uh, that, that you know, we don't necessarily need the government's permission to do things. And that, that is so deeply ingrained in the American psyche in particular that I'm, I'm really happy to see this come out of the United States because this is where we've got the machinery of democracy and the machinery of capitalism to make it happen. So, so I don't think that, you know, as much as highly as I think of both Elon and Jeff Bezos, you know, they, they are the leaders who have recognized the, the era we're in and are moving forward. And, and, you know, I'm flattered to be considered in, in the category of those guys, but uh, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to take humans into space uh, with, with resources that they have put together of their own, own making. So that is something that's different than anything that's been done to date. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very promising. I mean, it's one of those things that's got to make humanity a better uh, species to be part of is to have people like that, that are, willing to take the resources and, and do that with it. It's, it's, it's very, uh, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. the, definitely. And to, an example from World War II that I think is really interesting is that the, when Hitler was having the Luftwaffe like bomb London, not, not just London, but a bunch of places in the UK, he kept switching the targets. And if even the, the British were like, oh, if they just kept doing it, they would have wiped us out. But he kept like choosing an objective and then he would change it because he didn't have the good feedback loop to know if it was working. And so when it comes to business, I'm always curious, like, how do, how do you know when you're on the right path versus like a person who just keeps switching and pivoting, as I think a lot of startups like to call it, where like they just keep changing the marker. And then if they just, if they would have just stayed the course and like kept believing in themselves that they would have worked it out. And as someone who's gone from like engineering to business development, um, I'm, I'm curious if you've noted, like, if there's a good way to tell to set up a system of like checks and balances so you can kind of tell when you're on the right path versus when you're just kind of like going straight into the abyss and no one, there's no like stop signs to say like, don't do this. If you like noted any uh, commonalities like that. So I'll go back to racing again. It's really a lot like a race. And one of the reasons I like endurance racing, you know, you may have an eight hour race. You have no idea how it turns out. And uh, you know, at a certain point, you know, you've got a problem with a car or a driver or whatever. And, seems like it's over and then you can turn out to be, you know, on the podium, a winner. And you, you just don't know how these things turn out in business either. And what I've discovered, uh, and I think this is probably universally true, is that you, your intuition, if you're a good entrepreneur, your intuition is generally good. And your first plan is almost always the best and your first reaction is almost the right one. So what you have to do is to develop a discipline to stick with the plan. And unless there, there are data that are showing you the plan's absolutely not working. And, you know, that's a sort of a self-awareness that you have, you have to be able to pivot. But by and large, I think people pivot too frequently. I think they pivot too easily. That's a form of giving up. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, as an entrepreneur or a racer, the only formula for success is to never, ever, ever, ever give up. And you just have to keep pounding on it. But you got to rely on your intuition. Um, that, that is your most valuable resource as, as a racer or an entrepreneur. And uh, that's why I think not everybody's an entrepreneur. Not everybody has great intuition. It's one of those things that uh, I think we're partly born with and we partly learn it with time. And, uh, you know, my, my career has been like a fruit fly, <laughs> with a rapid genetic cycle. I've done a lot of things in consulting and 
at different jobs. And, and so I've been fortunate enough to see a lot of different circumstances and, and been aware enough to absorb a lot of those lessons, not all of them, but a lot of those lessons. So that's really helped me uh, personally see, see uh, uh, you know, that, that the original intuition is probably the right thing to do. And when you, you see situations arise, you know, you can draw on that experience, but there's no metrics. There's no, there's no guidebook. There's no, uh, uh, there, there's no orb that you can put your hands around and get the right answer. You know, it comes, it comes in right here. Mm-hmm. The, there was a, a time at SpaceX where, so I read, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but that, that like one of the rockets exploded and it was one of the, it was at a time where I think a number of the rockets exploded, but this is in the beginning, early days where like they didn't have, they didn't have too many rockets left. And like people had to either like make the next rocket work or like it wouldn't have worked out at all. And so like, you know, he believed in and stayed in the course. And so I'm curious if, was there ever a time in Vector where you felt like you were on that like type of precipice where like, if we didn't, if you didn't like do your all, it would have worked out or not worked out. Like if you didn't do your all, it wouldn't work out. Or was it, you took all your experiences from the past and you had like trusted your instincts and there wasn't like a situation where there was a, like rockets blowing up like that, where it like put you into that position, if that makes sense. Well, so, you know, we haven't made it as far as SpaceX has made it yet. So we have yet to be challenged. Uh, that's, that's pretty obvious, but you know, yes, of course, every, every financing round is that if we don't raise the money, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have enough money to go to the next stage. And it becomes very stressful on me personally, because I'm the guy that raises the money, but it's, uh, it's, it's definitely something uh, that, that's a, a live or die kind of situation. And the, the real challenge is the decisions you make lay the foundation for many things later, just like building a house. If you make an error in the foundation of the, of the home, uh, there's a compromise later somewhere or potentially a failure. So what you hope is that the decisions you make on a daily basis don't lead you to that point. And, uh, you know, space is a very unforgiving business for a number of reasons, but the, the biggest reason is it's very unforgiving of, of uh, mistakes. And, it, you know, the mistakes can be anything from, you know, did we spend enough money on something? Did we hire the right people to, you know, did this, this guy uh, drop a screwdriver on something and, and nick it and uh, it fails later. So, so I, I face that every day, uh, you know, today I was questioning, you know, the, the, the need to have well inspections on certain parts, you know, to save some money. I could, I could just say, okay, just go do it. But the other side of it, I mentioned money earlier, you know, you, you've got this, this balance of terror between running out of money because you're an entrepreneur. And that's the difference between a government funded program and an entrepreneurial funded program is you're, you're always making these trade-offs between, you know, what the money is, what the schedule is, and what the outcome is. And, uh, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as good at that, but not all of us are, are good and some people fail. And, uh, so, so yeah, Vector, we have yet to, to have those moments. We, we have had, uh, big risks we've taken, you know, we flew two of these, uh, block zero vehicles, our very first one. Um, we, we took it out in the desert in April of 2017. Uh, we had a, we had a, a shutdown of, uh, of the flight computer. We didn't understand it. We took it back to the, the factory and, and did some rework on it. Came back in May and flew it. Um, but, you know, right before we flew it, what people didn't see is we had valves leaking. And one of our guys, he used to be my crew chief on my race team, uh, Barry Ellis, he, uh, 
he, he was looking at the cameras on board the, the vehicle and he said, depressurize the vehicle and I'll go out and fix it. And he took a couple of wrenches out and he literally stuck his head up the bottom of the rocket and he tightened a couple of uh, bolts and then it got out. It was perfectly safe, you know, because it was unpressurized. It's a tank of fuel next to him. But, uh, you know, when they pressurized again, it was, it was good and uh, we flew it. So, so, uh, you know, we did the same thing in uh, our second flight and uh, John Garvey and I made the decision to manually ignite it. You know, the computer sequence kept shutting down and we had, you know, a lot of people watching. We had uh, a representative from the nearby Kings Bay nuclear submarine base there and we had a lot on the line and millions of people watching live and John and I have troubles with the igniters and we decided to, uh, that if we, uh, if we saw smoke come in the cameras, that we would manually set the ignition off. <laughs> it could have been the computers are saying, don't fire it. And after the third time we said the computers are wrong. So one of our engineers uh, quit. He was so mad at us and John and I just went ahead and did it. It worked. And of course he didn't quit for very long. He came back, but he was, he was really upset with us. He didn't agree with that decision. So you take those kind of risks and, uh, you know, we'll have failures. We, we will. I know, no, no, that. And just like we'll spin the car, but uh, hopefully we'll have enough resources to get everything going back again. And uh, it's like Elon, you know, he, uh, he found money and uh, got the company going and, you know, who knows, you know, what, what lies ahead of you. It's just like an endurance race. Mm-hmm. Was it a, uh, like, I guess the goofball in me wants to know if, if the, the ignition button was like a big red button that said like, do not press or something like that. Or like, was it a special button at all? Or was it just it like was a big red button <laughs> <laughs> as it should be like, um, yeah. like the, I hope so. I don't know. I'm going to look for a picture of that somewhere. I hope it was like televised because <laughs> that's a pretty good, I'll, I'll use it for one of the graphics. But, um, when, when it comes to like the future, like 2019, 22, 20, oh, wow. It's almost 2020. I graduated high school almost 10 years ago. But the, so, so the what does like what does the future of Vector look like? I mean, you had a number of successes this year. Is it does the like be like I imagine in the future you have like you've opened a window and kind of done the thing where it's like this is the future I want to have. This is the future where I'm building towards. Are are you like how far away are you to that future? And what does that future look like for for you and Vector? Well, I mean, our ultimate future we see is we're flying rockets 100 times a year or more and uh, both our little one our vector r and our vector h and uh that we are making lots of money and uh we're also uh doing digital delivery of of digital services that we have a on-orbit constellation called galactic sky that uh app developers are using like iphones and they're creating uh, new value and use cases for society that we would never imagined and uh, so that's our that's our endpoint uh, as we see it today. And uh, we also imagine a, a future where our rockets can actually develop or uh, can uh, transport goods from point to point on the Earth at very rapid speeds and very low costs and uh, flying around. And, and we see a future where literally the economy of, of near Earth orbit is is wholly developed, and, and the rockets are operating much like craft do, and uh, people don't clap every time a rocket launches. And uh, unless you're in, in, in old Russia, you know, we don't, we don't clap every time an aircraft takes off and lands, although they do there. Um, so uh, uh, where we're at today is, you know, we're very close to our very first orbital launch. And uh, we had planned to do that by the end of the year, but 
some uh, deliveries of, of critical flight items were late and uh, we decided just for risk purposes to delay the first quarter next year. So everything looks <clears throat> pretty good for that. Uh, one of our uh, friends in the business tried to launch two vehicles out of Alaska uh, of a similar size and had two failures. So we're sort of understanding that, that uh, those failure slots have been used up for the industry and we really have to succeed. So we're taking our time and trying to make sure that's right. Um, and then, so this year, 2019 is pretty pivotal for us because uh, we see this as the year we're getting to orbit and we'll start to uh, get our, our regular production going. And, you know, you can go back to financing. This will allow us to go get the next stage of financing and uh, that will take us to profitability. So we're very close to being profitable. We, we see eventually down the road a public offering for Vector Stock. And uh, there's a tremendous amount of public interest in what we're doing, support for it. Um, we, we believe in, in the, uh, the company and we think it would make a great, uh, a great public company. So that's one of the options that we're seriously evaluating. Mm -hmm. So when it when it comes to the the satellite software developer thing, I don't know why I described it that way, but I, I haven't found if there's like another example where you kind of like drew inspiration to make that from. I, uh, basically, the question is like, where'd you get that idea from? Like, did, was it something they saw like um, what Amazon's doing with their with their app development platform, and you're like, oh well, I want I bet people would be excited to do that in space, and there's other unique applications for it, or like I guess like that that was really interesting to me like that idea that you could do that and I imagine like people are probably just going nuts wanting to, to like develop apps well, that way. Surprisingly, very few people understand it yet. So it's it's an idea that's ahead of its time uh, for sure. Uh, but really, where the idea came from was uh, early on um, we recognized that satellites and building satellites is something that's spreading in terms of the number of people in a number of countries that are doing it, but yet it's still a black art. It's, there's a very limited number of people who have this specialized knowledge, and it's almost like a little club of people who uh, are currently doing it, and there's a few that learn it through the School of Hard Knocks. There's not a lot of places you can go to learn how to build and operate satellites. So the idea was, why not create a, a system and we were thinking it was a software design system where you could order a rocket and then you get on there and you input a few parameters and outspits a satellite bus for you, uh, made by us, that was customized to whatever you want to do. And uh, one of our founders uh, and first investors, Sean Coleman, came out of Silicon Valley in the software industry. And one of the things he did uh, was help create the virtual machines for VMware and uh, Citrix is now our, our partner, if you've seen some of the commercials on that, and they are the, the competitor to VMware, but uh, we, we went ahead and uh, developed the idea that, that uh, virtual machines can and should be placed on a satellite in order to free up the architecture uh, for this, this build to, to print satellite, because one of the issues with spinning a satellite out that's built to your requirements is the software. Mm -hmm. and Right now, satellite software operates much like, say, a dishwasher or uh, you know, smart TV. Um, they're, they're really not very smart, and uh, you can't really pro reprogram them. I mean, go try to reprogram your, your smart TV to do other things. Good luck. 
So satellites are very much the same way. And if you screw the software programming up, then the device never works again. So, so that in a satellite becomes terminal to its life. And of course, that's an expensive asset. So nobody will let you do that. So there was, there was this idea of putting virtual machines on the, on the satellite. And then that evolved into a recognition that once we did that, we actually can share satellites. And so the, the, the idea evolved between uh, Darren Garber, who's our chief scientist, and myself and Chuck Coleman, to actually create a software that's based on virtual machines that can really allow applications to be developed independent of the satellite itself. And we could put up potentially our own constellation uh, that could then Uberize other space assets up there. If you have imagers in, in orbit, for example, uh, we could have software-defined radios that talk to them. So if you have an app, for example, you want to use imagery, then you only use enough of that imagery off this other, other uh, Uberized uh, asset to get that imagery over. Uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're the county in which you live and you want to look for new buildings that, that haven't been licensed. And so you build a little app that uses a little AI and some imagery to look for new homes. And, and that's a use case you can think of. There, there's a lot of communications use cases you can think of. You can have uh, abilities to track things from low Earth orbit like we would do from geostationary orbit without the physical limitations. So we started to think of all these use cases. And look, we're really not that smart compared to society as a whole. And, and if you look at society as a whole, you know, where all the, the intellect is really being focused right now is in software applications and tech. And so what we wanted to do is to create a canvas where that intellect could be employed in, in low Earth orbit. So that's why we went ahead and patented the use of the virtual machine in space. And we drew some analogies from modern networking to directly answer your question with this, because if you look at modern networking, it uses uh, virtual machines. So you have a, your own process that might be, might be using Adobe Acrobat on on the web and it's operated on this server over here. This server gets a problem. It gets migrated over to another server halfway across the world. You don't even notice because the virtual machines moved across. That's the kind of architecture that will actually make space useful. And no longer do you have these silos of satellites and, and assets that aren't being used all the time. Uh, so, so we think this is a great enabler of digital delivery of, of space services. That's why Vector, we consider ourselves a, a uh, space access company. So the first part of the space access is you've got to solve the physical access that's not been really solved. And we have to create a transportation system, much like you know the companies delivered the railroads to the West and mm -hmm. doing the same thing with the, with the launch vehicles. And then once you do that, then the question is, what do you do with that service? But until you have that, you can't, you can't even contemplate this kind of future in space unless you have the delivery problem resolved. So ultimately we're a digital delivery service from space and uh, doesn't compete with our customers. It actually is something our customers will probably use. We, we see ourselves as the future windows of all satellite systems with our galactic sky operating system. Interesting. The, the, I'm like checking my time. All right, sweet. So, um, to transition kind of poorly and then i'm gonna like shoot off a bunch of like quick questions and you can answer it as short or as long as possible because i'm being mindful of the time i have a clock because sometimes i'll run over so um first quick question is you've met a lot of inspiring people um you know elon musk when he was a young person uh, uh carl sagan which i love that guy he was he's when i think of space i think of him 
uh, and his quote with uh, Herman Melville in the seventies. The is there is there anyone is there anyone you haven't met that's that inspires you like that that you like wish you could meet? Yeah, past and present. Like I, I guess like if you could go back in time and like meet them, and that'd be pretty cool. But like, is there anyone you you haven't met that you'd still like to meet that inspires you or interests you? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, uh, uh, there, there's a couple of people. So one you'll find strange is General George Patton. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of him. His his leadership style for me is inspiring. He was, by by his own admission and his men's admission, he was a son of a bitch. But he was a son of a bitch that cared for them, but he won. And uh, he, he he was a romantic figure that that understood history and and saw his part in it. And uh, uh, I, I would really like to meet him and, and just hang around with him for a little bit. He might uh, slap me with his glove like he did the soldier, but uh, it, it would it would definitely be worth it. And uh, the other guy I really would, would, would like to hang around and drink beer with is Steve McQueen. I think he was one of the coolest, coolest guys to ever live. And uh, if you study his life a little bit, you know, like me, he, he grew up a little bit underprivileged. And uh, by his own admission, he, he should have, you know, ended up in uh, – in prison by the time he was 18. I my, my teachers say the same thing about me. But, you know, I, I feel sort of a kinship to him a little bit. And uh, would w- really like to have gotten to know him. It's a tragedy that he's passed. Mm-hmm. The, like, uh, Carlos Sagan is kind of like that for me, where I think he died in, in 90, 91 or 92, and I was born in 92. And I was like, oh, that guy would have been so amazing to me. Died uh, probably 95. I, I met him uh, several times in 91, 92, and 93. Okay. Well, I was a baby. He probably wouldn't want to <laughs> meet me anyway. But uh, uh, interesting people. I, I like the patent one, but I'll, I'll segue to the next one. The um, So for Elon Musk and people like yourself who have kind of like gone from, well, you, Elon Musk, I don't know if actually if people say this about Elon Musk. I know they say about Richard Branson where like a lot of people said that you'll either be really successful or you're going to go to jail. Um I'm curious, is there, are there other commonalities between space people? Because, you know, Richard Branson, he's in space now, where it's like that, where I don't know if people say that about Elon Musk, now that I think about it. I don't think people said he'd go to jail or be successful. Um, but um, do you think that there are other commonalities like that in entrepreneurs like yourself, other than oh, what we talked dream- about? Yeah. yeah, we're all dreamers. You know, we, we, all, we all are very, uh, very, very much caught up in our ideas about how things should be and uh, very unhappy with the status quo. That's something we definitely all have in common. And we're all builders too, one way or another. I, I say over and over, I'm, I'm a builder of machines, a builder of houses, builder of companies. You know, I, I don't really care what I'm doing as long as I'm building something, uh, except for that furniture that comes in boxes from Amazon. I hate building that. Um, that's assembling. Uh, but but the, the creative process is something that definitely uh, is something we all have in common. I've seen that over and over and over. And that's also the good scientists, I think, are also the real creative ones, too. So you talk about Carl Sagan, and he was, he was one of the most brilliant creative thinkers I've ever met. And uh, I really honestly expected him to be a horse's ass. But he was, uh, he was, he was a true gentleman. And uh, just I was so impressed with him, just really, really terribly impressed with him. And his, his wife, Annie, I, I worked with, with her uh, after... Carl passed on, on a number of things and she's just so in love with him and dedicated to his memory. You know, it's really touching. So, so, you know, I think a lot of these, these famous figures share that. Um, there's a lot of others we don't talk about like Henry Ford, who's maybe 
uh, a lot more flawed. <laughs> We're all flawed. Uh, his flaws maybe showed a little bit more than the rest of us, but uh, you know, I'm sure we all share serious flaws at some level. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, to err is to be human. The, the, okay, so the the uh, last question I think is that it's kind of a long one because I wrote it out. <laughs> but so a lot of people are inspired by you. You know, Elon, Elon Musk, we talk a lot about, and you've met the, and they they think like, how can I get to where you are? And in the sense of like you found where you belong, you found success and, you know, finding that level of something you're passionate about, something that you have skill for, something to have, have demand for. And a lot of the listeners on my podcast is about 25 to 35. So people who are either just getting out to start it in their first field or it first couple of jobs and are thinking like, how am I going to make a difference? Do you, do you have, have you found any good ways to kind of like test yourself? Like you've tested yourself with driving to find that tri that, that balance of the three so that you can find where you'll, you'll make the most, um, make the most difference to society, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. So for me, it was never a question of what I was passionate about. I was just building things. You know, the, the big question is, you know, how do I turn that into something of value? Right. And, and, and what most people probably don't know about me is that, you know, I really didn't want to go to college. I, I had a job as a Ford mechanic right after high school and I made lots of money at it. You know, I could, for, for then, I mean, it's not compared to what I make now, but yet it, coming out of high school, it was a lot of money. And I never wanted to go to college. I, I wanted to stay a Ford mechanic and my, uh, my high school shop teacher encountered me that summer and asked me if I was going. I said, no. And I thought he was going to whip my ass, uh, you know, saying, saying go. So, so it's, um, that it was good advice somebody gave me, but you know, had I not gone to college, I wouldn't have had the perspective on on how I might actually do a lot of these things that creates even more value. So, so it's it, that's really where it is, and I and I worry about a lot of the uh, the the youth who don't uh, don't know what it is that 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 you know encourages them and they're passionate about. I mean, with my own children, some of them uh, know what makes them passionate, and some of them don't, and you know, that the, the ones that don't are the ones I really worry about. So, so that's really where the focus ought to be. And then, then how do you translate that into, into value? It really, really takes time and, and, and patience. And uh, there's no real formula for that, I don't think. Mm. It reminds me of what Benjamin Franklin's dad did to him. And maybe, uh, maybe you do this with your kids as well, where when Benjamin Franklin was at the age where he needed an apprenticeship, with something he like he took him around like exposed him to candle making and a bunch of other things and then watched how he'd react to it and then whatever it was he would like push benjamin franklin to do that because he didn't want him to run away to see so it seems like the best way to do it um is just not to necessarily read books or anything like that but to like find experiences where you can find passion like racing or space and then slowly work your way into it through kind of like an apprenticeship or, or something like that um seems to be like a good like i don't know summary of what i heard but maybe you know people would hear if people heard something else, you can message me about it. But uh, try, it. try it, you know, mm -hmm. you, you try a lot of things in life. It's not a bad thing. You know, be experimental. Don't be afraid of failing. Mm -hmm. And then, so for, for people who want to learn more, I know there's uh, vectorspace.com with a hyphen in between. And then there, yeah. And then you have a personal website, which uh, those will be listed in the show notes. But is there any other great ways to learn more about you? There's also really great articles you wrote uh, on LinkedIn. I will link those as well. But anything else besides those three? So um, I'm working on a book, and uh, 
it's not quite an autobiography, but it's a story of New Space and how it came about. And it's uh, uh, called uh, Never, uh, Breaking All the Rules. And uh, it'll be published uh, probably within about a year. So I'm, I'm, I'm about halfway done with it. So uh, keep your eye out for that. And, and uh, it'll be all the, all the little stories I've told over the years folded into how this inter intersects with all these interesting people in life. And, you know, it, hopefully it inspires people to create their own story because uh, we all have our own story. Joining me today with the Learn With Old podcast, where we learned about Jim, racing, entrepreneurship, space industry, and all that. For people who want to see the 70 plus other episodes, go to the, you know, check out the rest of the YouTube channel. Also, there's uh, about 65 plus other episodes that are just audio on my website, learningwithlowell.com. We also have a Patreon page and Twitter. I have more updates on Twitter than I do have on anything else. So if you want to follow me anywhere, it'd be on there. Um, Twitter at learning, uh, not learning with Lowell, Twitter at Lowell was here and it'll be in the show notes as well.